Welcome to Lessons in Leadership. I'm Steve Adubato. Right over there on camera, you can see or you can hear Mary Gamble, my colleague, co-host and executive producer. Mary, are you feeling the leadership vibe today? I am feeling it just deep in my core. It's great. It's great. It's always so much fun talking about leadership, getting to talk to such great guests. You never know what topics are going to come up. And in between us, by the way, is our good friend Ira Robbins, who's the president and CEO of over at Valley Bank. By the way, the brand, there's been a brand, Mary will tell everyone about our funders and where to find us in just a second. Mm -hmm. the, the brand right now of Valley is Valley. Is Valley, that's it. That's we it, that's all you uh, need. We've gotten rid of Valley National Bank as a brand and simply went to Valley. And by the way, since we're plugging brands, Let's make it clear, Mary, that this program has been sponsored by such folks as... New Jersey Resources, Prager Metis accounting firm. We have Gibbons as well. A great law firm. Absolutely and great law firm. And by Prager Metis, a terrific accounting firm. And, and consulting uh, firm. Who mm -hmm. else? And also, too, we have the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 825. Greg Lollaby, who's been on this Greg program. Lallaby. Check out the uh, past edition of Lessons in Leadership with Greg yeah. Lollaby. Yeah, and the list goes on. RWJ Barnabas Health, and then we have MD Advantage. So just a lot of great folks. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Ira Robbins is the CEO of over at Valley and Tell folks, Ira, the footprint of Valley. So Valley is a, we call ourselves a local bank. We grew up in New Jersey in 1927. Today we have offices in New Jersey, New York, including Long Island, Florida, and Alabama. Let's do this because uh, full disclosure, mostly because of Ira and, and his colleagues at Valley, Mary and I, through our company, Stand and Deliver, do a leadership academy at Valley. We're really at the top people, exactly. high potential folks, Yvonne and the team, the great uh, HR team over there, identify high potential people. Let's talk about that. Whether it's called a Leadership Academy, whether it's our organization or any other that you bring in to do this, why is leadership development, particularly for those who have high potential, so critically important for an organization's success? Talk about it, Ira. You mentioned a few different structures and programs that we have within the organization. Ours is only one. Yours is one piece of it, but I think your piece is unique in that it's customized to select individuals. And I think one of the challenges with leadership is it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And I think being able to have customized techniques and customized evaluations, customized strategies for each of our employees is important and critical to their own individual development. And it's consistent with what we want as an organization as well. So I think it's the blending of what is Valley's strategic direction, being able to look at each of our individual employees and saying, what do we mesh together and not having a one size fits all approach and your stand and deliver groups approach to that, I think is important to where we're, we're going. But the other part of that, and it's interesting, I, we have so many offline conversations about this. I started working with Ira, I'd say about a decade ago. Yeah. You are not the leader today that you were then. None of us are. <laughs> How have you changed in the last 10 years as a leader? Hopefully matured a little bit, but I think probably empathy. By the way, he's one of the youngest CEOs <laughs> in the country. <laughs> Go ahead. I think empathy is probably the biggest self-development, and I think it's one thing you can read about in any book. But you really have to believe it and understand who you are and go through experiences in your life to understand. Define empathy from a leadership point of view. People have different definitions of it, so go ahead. I think empathy first starts with understanding those around you, understanding what drives and, and what's important to those around you, and then taking a real care and responsibility to making sure that you're assessing, understanding, and then helping to make those people better based on, on your assessment and based on, on a common direction as to where you could be. Without, I think, understanding and looking at people's perspectives, it's very difficult to be a leader. Yeah, but there's another side to this. By the way, if you're listening to us on AM 970 or anywhere else, this is Ira Robbins. He's the president and CEO over at Valley. Previous position on the finance side? Exactly. That's where I grew up. Okay. 
He knows dollars and cents, <laughs> which is why I'm the CEO there, excuse me, the CFO. It's very challenging because Ira asks very challenging questions because he knows what he's talking about. That being said, the other thing I know about you from working with you is your standards are ridiculously high. That's a compliment. How the heck do you balance this sense of empathy of where people are coming from with the fact that your standards for performance and excellence are very high. But I think they're aligned. I mean, in my mind, I have empathy for those around me and empathy looks at everyone within the organization. And if we're not setting high standards, then we're prohibiting the growth of others within the organization. If we're not achieving what we as an organization should be achieving, then we're limiting the opportunities for career development within the organization. So when I look at empathy, in my mind to set an ROA target, an EPS target that's up here, expect that we will deliver and execute on that ROA and EPS target. Well, what's the jargon here? Sorry, return the finance on, comes back, return, so, on, return on assets, and okay. then earnings per share would be the EPS. But financial metrics, let's just look at okay. it from that perspective. So when we set high financial metrics, even when we set individual targets and achievements that are elevated compared to others, it's an opportunity for people to grow within the organization, but it's the ripple effect throughout the organization. And to me, that's part of what empathy is, is understanding that everyone within the organization, we have 3,200 employees. Empathy in part is understanding that each one of those 3,200 employees have a different home life when they go back to, have a different career expectation, have a different personal expectation. Does that matter to you? It absolutely does. You know, when we had our strategy summit three weeks ago, one These are big, by the way, we got in front of a thousand summit. people. A and, lot of and, people and one of the questions I got from one of our employees was, what keeps me up at night? And I look at a litany of things and say, from an economic perspective, are we going to run into a recession? From a political perspective, who's going to be president? Where is the U.S. going Not to from? mention the stock price. Yeah. <laughs> from an investor is, perspective, right? Yes. And, and the one thing that keeps me up at night is we have 3,200 employees, and I honestly feel that I have a direct responsibility to make sure that I help them achieve what their individual, personal, and professional goals are in life. And if I don't do that, then I feel as if I failed them. And that's heartbreaking to but me. But there's another side to this. Because I've known Ira a long time, a lot of our conversations are about the personal side, the family piece, how important family will always be number one to you. But the other side of this, as we, again, our leadership library looks messy here, but if you go on our website on stand-deliver.com, it's organized in our top leadership books. But good to great, in this book, as you well know, and Mary and I have talked about this a lot, Jim Collins, who wrote Built to Last as well, talks about getting certain people not only to be sitting in the right seat on the bus, the bus being driven by Ira, having to get to where the bus needs to go, when the bus needs to go there, why they're going to that location. They also have the right people sitting in the right seats on the bus. However, there are certain times where the bus driver has to escort certain people off the bus because the bus can't succeed. And the bus is a metaphor for any organization. You cannot succeed with that person on the bus. So here's my question. You talked about family. You talked about making sure these people are feeling good about themselves, reaching their potential. You've also let people go because Valley can't be what Valley needs to be in this competitive marketplace with them on the bus. Hard for you? It's miserable. It's painful. You know, these are people that we have, I personally have real deep relationships with. And that said, Martin Luther King once said, the avoidance of confrontation leads to perpetual disruption. And I'm sure Martin Luther King had a much different environment as to how he was thinking about when he said that. But I think it's appropriate for leadership also, unless you're willing to make tough decisions and look at where you want to go as an organization, make sure that you have the right people getting there, then you're going to have perpetual dysfunction throughout your organization and you're never going to be able to execute. And I think Dr. King had it correct. It might not have applied specifically to leadership as to how he was thinking about it, but it's a definitely applicable, I think, in any organization. The avoidance of confrontation 
is something that any leader should absolutely try to make sure isn't something that's in their character's trait. Do you care if you're disliked by some in the process or not as popular with them when you have to do these things? You mentioned yeah, Dr. King. I'll mention uh, Colin Powell, who I mentioned this every other show. His great quote to me in my interview with him in connection with the book is, great leaders sometimes piss people off because they do what is right for the organization. Go ahead. I don't think the board put me in this position to be liked by everyone. When I sit there and I go to work every single day, my job is not to make everyone happy. And I'm comfortable with that. Uh, you are. Absolutely. It's not the easiest thing It's not an act ever. that you're comfortable with. You have to be comfortable. I don't have a choice. And I think, look, the internal part of me says, hey, this is difficult. But once again, I think it goes back to what I believe to be a moral responsibility to the people that I have working for me. And I feel by not making a decision over here and avoiding that decision is subjecting and limiting and restricting the opportunity for growth for that many others within the organization. And it's my responsibility if I want to make sure that every one of our employees has the opportunity to achieve what he or she wants in his or her life, that I have to make that tough decision. And I'm the one that's going to be disliked by that person. You know what? But the other 3,200 people are going to be better off based on that decision. And that's how internally I'm able to get comfort with it. You're listening to Ira Robbins, President and CEO of Valley. This is Lessons in Leadership. I'm Steve Adubato. That's Mary. And Gamba, I want to thank all of our sponsors again for helping to make this program possible. Valley being one of our most significant clients. Mary, I could see you listening oh, intently. I, I, I've been like leaning in <laughs> and I want in. to jump in and I don't jump want to in. interrupt. By the way, lean in by Cheryl Sandberg. I'm leaning in. Leadership Library, go ahead. I did not coin the phrase. When you're talking about it, you're talking about the 3,200 employees and obviously that's your vision and that's your leadership style. You can't do it alone. How do you create a culture at Valley where those people that you oversee and then those people that they oversee, how do you make sure that they are instilling in themselves and then in their team those same values? Because that's got to be hard and challenging with 3,200 people. It's clarity of communication and making sure that the message that I'm intending mm -hmm. is the message that's being delivered. I think making sure that I'm setting a strategic direction that's clear and concise for everyone to look at. I also think from a leadership trait, you know, when I look at leadership skills, to me, a leader has to be humble, a leader has to be honest, a leader has to be ethical, a leader has to be authentic, and a leader has to be sincere. And in my mind, those five traits are exquisitely important for our leadership team. And if they don't have that, then I think it's going to be a real challenge for each of them to deliver the message that we're looking for within our organization. You know, you said humble. Connect humble with the confidence that is necessary to be a strong leader. You are confident. Absolutely. You're extremely confident. Yep. Particularly when <laughs> it's easy to be confident when you're winning and the stock price is great and everyone's on board. To be confident when things aren't going as well. Talk about Dr. Spencer Johnson, Peaks and Valley, right? I didn't mention I use Valley. that term a lot, by the way. Do peaks you? Talk valleys. about that. Why? Because without Valley, there'd be no peaks, right? So the importance of our bank leading to high expectations, but I quote that a lot oh, within our organization. I think that's going to be a new tagline for your bank there. <laughs> oh, I, I love right? that. Um, that being said, your confidence. I've always been struck by this because as a very, very young man, even younger than you were, you, you saw the possibility of being a CEO. You wanted that for yourself. In order to do that, people confuse ego and confidence, not to mention narcissism. Not a great trait. I've known Ira a long time. The opposite of narcissist, but very confident. Your confidence, to what degree does your confidence as a leader come from wrestling in college? For me, wrestling was acutely impactful upon my life. I would say outside of your normal family, which obviously has the most impact upon you, but there were two things in my life. 
we grew up in Annapolis, Maryland, and my family at a young age sponsored plebes from the Naval Academy to come to our house. To right to your house? Right to our house. And what would happen was this would be sort of their way of getting away from the Naval Academy the first year entrance into the midshipmen. They would come to our house, home away from home. But if you look at it, these were the most high character individuals in our country. And my parents surrounded my brother, my sister, and I with these people from probably 10 years old through high school. And we did such a great job of welcoming these individuals into our home that every year they would continue to come back, even though they weren't really required to. And by the time we were 17 years old, we had six, seven, eight midshipmen in our house at any one time of the highest character individuals. And when I think when you talk about ethics and sort of role models as to who you want to be, surrounding yourself with the right people, obviously, is, is a very that? important trait. I think ethics to do the right thing, I think is the most important trait that somebody could have. I think when I look at my leadership style and those sort of five taglines that I think are really important, being authentic in who you are with things that I learned from them. I think also when you look at what they're doing, they're doing something for others. You know, I think you mentioned Serving that leadership a little with, uh, bit. Brian Price, we were talking about You that. talked about that earlier, right? Their life, they're committed to something that they think is greater than them. And there's something noble about that, but I think outside of the nobility that goes with that, it's sort of core to who you are as a human being, looking out for others, right? I think we always try to care for others, right? And I think having that really grown out from what I was able to witness is something that was really impactful to me. So that was number one. And then I think wrestling to me was an appropriate sport that I thought was different from a lot of other sports where you had a team approach. But team you're out there alone, Ira. But it's a combination of both, right? And I think that's the uniqueness. In basketball, you can have a great game and the team loses. And you can't say- Hockey, you, Mary's right? the same thing. And you Go can't ahead. say that you won in that individual thing. So you still have the ability in wrestling to say, I won, I did my part, and still have hopefully a team feel as well if that team was to win. So I think you have the ability to have individual performance as well as team. And I think when you translate that into the business world, individual performance is important, but an understanding that your individual performance alone isn't mm -hmm. gonna make the team succeed. Mary's sitting there going, we thought we knew Ira. And I, know, I, I, I didn't know. know that whole Annapolis connection. Oh, no, I had no idea. And I was hoping that you were going to get into the story about you having to wrestle your brother, your twin brother. <laughs> I knew that was going to come up. And <laughs> you have to at least give us a Cliff's Notes version So of that. my brother and I were wrestling in an AAU tournament to qualify to go to nationals. How old? We were 16-ish years okay. old. And being twins in the wrestling circuit, we were sort of well-known, I guess, in, in that circle. So it was a draw tournament. My brother and I were unfortunately in the same bracket. So in the semifinal match, we had to go against each other. So one of us is gonna get the opportunity to go into the finals and then go to nationals. And the other one is unfortunately not gonna be able to go to nationals. So it was a massive decision as to, you know, whether we're gonna wrestle each other or whether we're not. And my my mom would flip out at every single wrestling match. She had to be cordoned off in, 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 in an area <laughs> where she was by herself because she was grabbing every single one of the visitors that were there watching. And my brother and I decided that it'd be best for us just to flip a coin. From a strategic perspective, the other one would, would be more well-rested to go on to the finals. Who made the recommendation? I think we just came up on okay, our own ahead. to do that. So we, and we didn't want to torture my mom, to be honest with you. So we go out and my brother wins the coin toss. So we go out on the match and literally there are hundreds of people surrounding this match thinking that this is going to be oh, no. a huge match. <laughs> And we play around with each other for a little bit. And then he goes ahead, flips me over and pins me. Everyone starts booing because they wanted to see a real I'm match sorry. here, right? So my brother goes on 
destroys the guy in the finals, gets to go to nationals. My dad, a week later, had found out that I could have gone up to New Jersey and could enter New Jersey's qualification. And turns out the week later, I won New Jersey and we both got to go. So wow. good ending. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. So it worked out well. You've learned a lot about leadership and life from wrestling, haven't you? Yeah, I think so. And by the way, this is Ira Robbins, who's the president and CEO of Valley. This has been uh, Lessons in Leadership. I want to take a quick break. I promise we'll be right back right after this. Right, Mary? Absolutely. Is that a guarantee? It's a guarantee. And leadership, you got to make guarantees. We'll be right back right after this. This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com. This edition of Lessons in Leadership is brought to you by New Jersey Resources and Prager Metis, your world worth more. Welcome back to Lessons in Leadership. I'm Steve Adubato with my colleague, co-host, and the person that uh, keeps me uh, doing what I need to do every day, Mary Gamba. We're here with our friend Ira Robbins, who is the president and CEO over at Valley. Real quick, before we move into the question of mergers and acquisitions and its connection to this thing called integration, integrating two cultures, two different organizations, because let's just say Valley over the years has continued to connect itself with, otherwise known as acquiring, yeah. uh, other organizations. Family, the book Off Balance, written by Matthew Kelly, I've talked about this a lot. Work, life, balance. Do you believe it's balance? I don't think at any point in time there's a balance. <laughs> I think over a period of time there's a balance. I think you and I discussed this at one point. When I think about life, it's really a pie chart. In my mind, it goes back to sort of the finance background, but is there's different slices. A slice that makes up what you want to do for work, a slice that makes up how much time you have for your kids, a slice that makes up the all-important, how much time you have with your wife. You separate how the much two, don't you? I do. And then the last one is how much time you have for yourself. And in my mind, when I think about a pie, you can sit there and feel bad about yourself at any point in time, that there's no time for yourself, no self-development. But the wonderful thing about looking at it from that perspective is pie charts are dynamic, right? Being that every point in time in your life, you have the ability to change what that pie looks like. It's not static. At all. And, and I think whenever I get depressed about, hey, there's only five minutes in a day for Ira, what am I going to do to help develop myself to help make me a better person? Part of that is that tomorrow there could be a half hour for Ira. And by the way, 15, 10 years from now, there could be 40% of it for Ira. And in my mind, the appropriateness of that balance needs to not look at a point in time, but needs to look over a longer period of time. And the best part of it is, is I get to control that pie. So when I start feeling down that, hey, there's no time for me, in the end, I'm the one that controls the allocation of my time across that whole pie. So everything's really for me. How important is it having family support with a job like yours, being the leader that you are, how important is it to have that home base as solid as it is? It's more important than I think I even think it is. Having my wife, Esther, and we have four kids. Having what are the them, ages again? Let's tell everyone. Ari's 10, Levi's 8, Ezra's 6, and Zev is 2. So I can all promise boys. you, when they get older, <laughs> you'll have a lot more time for yourself. So enjoy it now, right? I yes. mean, you can attest to that. Yes. Because then they, they drive places on yeah. their own. They Uber. Ours they blow, just they blow us off. Yeah. <laughs> so Which enjoy is breaking it. my heart. Our daughter Olivia, who's nine, if she they ever don't want to do us that, anymore. It's said, so sad. It's I can't handle it. But anyway, that makes but, sense. Yeah. It, but having a solid, somewhat normal foundation when I come home is important. Esther uh, gets the challenges you have and also you're empathetic to challenges she faces. I don't do a good enough job at all being empathetic to what she has to deal with. I try. 
there is no question, but you know, I think there's always room for perfection and what everyone should be doing. By the way, I'm oh, sorry. This morning, as an example, you know, I got our three kids off to school. Then you did? I got them off to school this morning, put them on a bus, made them breakfast, made Esther her coffee before she was running out to go do something. Then I took care of my two-year-old, <laughs> Steve, you did got that my thing. two-year-old dressed, put him to school, and then went to work. Hold on. At an earlier episode of Lessons in Leadership with my colleague, Mary Gamba, one of our colleagues said, one of our guests said, that women are more natural multitaskers than men. And I asked Mary if she agreed, and she said, of course. Disagree. <laughs> Ira, please make the case. Did you just hear wait, what Ira did? Wait, Hold do on. you think it's equal, though? Do you think that oh, men no, and no, women no, are no, equally? Mary, stop. Don't change the question. I don't think gender defines don't, it. Don't change it's, the okay, question. That's good. Ira's I, the CEO of one of the fastest growing banks in the country. It. Yes. Right? By the way, you just acquired? Or a tiny bank. Okay. And before he went to work to be the CEO, not to mention, come on, the greatest podcast on leadership in the world, you heard what he just did. Four, four of them out the door, Fed. Did the you door. strategically, intentionally say, that's on my agenda today? We discussed that last night, and Esther made sure that was on my agenda today. <laughs> <laughs> so let me go back to say, Esther made sure that it no, was on her agenda. Esther delegated, uh, yeah. delegated. and directed Ira, and he yes. was a good team player, which he learned in wrestling, to be on board. Look, part of one of the things I think also <laughs> is, is, look, in any leadership role, I think time management is critical. So I probably obsess more than anyone with regarding time management. So Esther made sure I knew it was on my calendar, but I was pretty structured as to ensuring my alarm went off at a certain time. Well, I don't need, even need it, but I was able to get enough work in before I had to make breakfast for my kids, before I had to wake this kid up. So in my head, whether it's written out or not, I have a really good idea as to what my day is going to look like with a real understanding, by the way, that flexibility and agility is important associated yep. with that. Uh, Ira mentioned an important theme. And by the way, I want to thank our sponsors before I talked about the fact that Ira mentioned perfection. Um, we're going to talk about the difference between the pursuit of perfection versus the pursuit of excellence. And if there is a difference, because I've got some Vince thoughts Lombardi. on that. We're going to talk about that because <laughs> I've got some mixed views on that. I want to thank our friends at Prager Metis at New Jersey Resources at the International Organization of Operating Engineers, Greg Lollaby, 825 MD Advantage, St. Joseph's Health, Valley, Gibbons, RWJ, Barnabas Health, and Hackensack Meridian Health, just some of the folks who believe in what we're doing, and we do leadership development there. Okay, here we go. You said perfection. <laughs> I don't know if you said it jokingly or whatever. Do you actually believe that perfection is the goal versus the pursuit of excellence, and is there a difference? So I think that what is Vince Lombardi said, right? He correctly understood in my mind that there's no such thing as perfection, yet the pursuit of perfection is what leads to excellence. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that by any means. I think perfection, the definition of it, what the variables that go into it, you know, perfection that just sits there. Once again, I'm back to financial statement that says our perfection is an ROA of 120 of performance metrics. Perfection looks like an execution of something that's flawless. I don't believe that to be perfection. You know, there's other variables that are involved, people. And I think when you encompass all of that, you're never going to get to perfection for everyone. So there's no such thing as perfection. But making sure that you have the right stakeholders, mm. understanding what's important to them, and driving towards that goal, in my mind, leads to excellence. Well, let's do this, because I want to tweak it a little bit. You're listening to and watching Lessons in Leadership with Steve Adubato and Mary Gamber. We're here with our good friend, Ira Robbins. This whole perfection versus excellence thing, we were doing a seminar, not at Valley, at another organization. And this is my concern about perfection. And Mary has accused herself accurately so of being a perfectionist. You are guilty as charged. I am. <laughs> that being said, I had a client who was supposed to give, as we do at Valley, a three-minute presentation on some aspect of the organization that she wanted to change or improve. Why the status quo wasn't good enough, 
what the change was, why it was important, blah, 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 blah. And she had a PowerPoint presentation. Now, I'm not against PowerPoint. I've seen it used once or twice well. That being said, the PowerPoint didn't work. The technology didn't work. And I said, Jane, why don't you just tell us what you were going to say? And I could see she was getting very anxious. And she said, no, it's in my PowerPoint slides. And there's a point to the story. I said, no, why not? It's not working. She said, just give me another minute. And she was getting angry at me at leading the seminar. Finally, I said, listen, if the PowerPoint doesn't work, what were you going to tell us? And she said, I want this to be perfect. And I need the technology to work for me. That's my problem with the pursuit of perfection, if the definition of perfection is that. Excellence would have been, look, the PowerPoint's not working. You have the strategic agility to turn around and say, here's what I wanted to talk to you about. Yes, this is what the picture would have been if you could see the PowerPoint. It's adapting. Yeah, but I would argue, so is the pursuit of perfection wrong or the requirement of perfection? Is that semantics? I don't necessarily think so. So in my mind, Look, perfection, you can look at it from in the pharmaceutical business. Look, how many drugs have we found that have had other side effects? If there weren't doctors, uh, my, my mom's going through some unfortunate issues, going down a path from Alzheimer's. One of the, the recent drugs that have come out that may be able to address Alzheimer's was an offshoot of something else that they were looking at doing from a, a cancer drug. The perfection and the ability to go down that path, I think, is really critical. But that said, the understanding that you don't need to be perfect and that there's other consequences that could be positive that come from that, in my mind, is what leads to excellence within any organization that you're looking at doing. So, But you have to be open to those possibilities. But that's why it's not the requirement of perfection. Striving to be perfect is never going to happen. But understanding that in your head you're never going to be perfect and that the negatives, perceived negatives that come from it could ultimately be positives and being open to that. I think that's a, an attribute. But this that young is, lady I was talking about, in your mind, you agree was too rigid. I think she has perfection as her goal, which I don't think should be anyone's goal. I think the drive towards perfection is important, but an understanding that you're never going to get there and an ability to say, when you go off on a different path, go with that path and don't circle back for perfection. Jump in, Mary. Yeah. And just what you were saying, it's a matter of setting that goal, but understanding that perfection is not actually possible. So it is. It's hard to balance. As a perfectionist myself, it's very hard because then you feel like you're always disappointed because you're not actually reaching perfection, but it's shades of gray as you go along the spectrum toward perfection. I but think what, that- But if, you've never lowered the- you One don't of the reasons Mary the bar, and I work yeah. well together is it's one of the reasons why we connected with Ira yeah. is we're absurd. Mm-hmm. We're, we're simply absurd about what we expect. Our standards are ridiculously high. And that's not, we're not patting ourselves on the back. It's just a fact. And it makes some people around us, frankly, very uncomfortable. But that's not the pursuit of perfection. It's about insisting that we be the best we can be with all kinds of variables beyond our control. Does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think it goes back on one to accountability. And once again, you having accountability for your own self. Right. But understanding that there's implications of what you do and it impacts many others. If my employees knew that I wasn't looking to have high standards, have high expectations, right. then how would they? Wouldn't they think that I'm letting them down? Well, you know what's interesting about this? Let's move into the, we have about five minutes left. You're speaking with Ira Robbins, the president and CEO of Valley. I'm Steve Autobato, that's Mary Gamba. This is the Leadership Hour, and this is Lessons in Leadership. Catch us on the back end as well. You'll be you're watching State of Affairs. Tell folks where they can find us again yeah, real quick. Absolutely. On our website, stand-deliver.com, as well as they can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. 
AM970, Fios on Demand, njbia.org, as well as ROI. ROI. ROI yep, absolutely. As well. And I'd like to also thank our sponsors for making this possible, New Jersey Resources, Prager Metis, and so many others. So. Got it. Mm-hmm. All right, here we go. Mergers and acquisitions. Since you've been the CEO, even before you with Jerry Lipkin, you're acquiring banks, but since you've been CEO, the pace is really quick. You talked about the standard of excellence we were talking about. Have you found that it's difficult when you acquire a new bank, the newest bank again is? Or a tiny bank. That there are different cultures that come together, particularly you're in Florida, by the way, Valley's in New Jersey, New York, Florida, and Alabama. Alabama. That being said, do you find that it's particularly challenging as a leader to instill a culture of excellence and very high standards when other organizations have their own? It's the blending of multiple cultures is obviously a challenge. And my experience is it takes three years with a lot of work to blend a culture and to be one and the same with work. Without work, it never happens. You know, going back to one of the reasons we looked at rebranding Valley. Valley was historically known as Valley National Bank. But to your point, it was really an amalgamation of Merchants Bank in New York, State Bank of Long Island, Greater Community Bank, Shrewsbury Bank, North Crown Bank. Then you go to Florida, First United Bank, CNL Bank, USAB Bank, which was a function of Alliant Bank and a bunch of different others. What is the culture of those organizations? And when we sat there and looked at Valley and said, you know, we had the opportunity to hit the reboot button and say, what do we want to be? What does the culture want to look like within the organization? And I remember we were looking at branding and we said, let's just rebrand the whole bank because in reality, we don't want to be Valley National Bank, just like we don't want to be the other ones. We want to set a new culture within our organization that lets everyone leave their thumbprint on what the future of Valley is going to look like. That's the brand. The question is, when these new people come in... So now we sit there and say, this is the brand within the organization. Everyone gets to leave their thumbprint on what that culture looks like. It goes back to those five, I think, core things that I think from a character trait. Being humble, being honest, being ethical, being authentic, and being sincere. So I think when we start at the top, those, I would say, are the character traits that everyone should have within the organization. When we think at the culture of the organization, what do we attempt to drive? Relentless customer approach, deepening relationships, and a commitment to the community. Two minutes left. I want to make sure I get this in. Your HR team is wonderful. We wouldn't be able to do what we do at Stand and Deliver, leading the Leadership Academy with you at Valley without them. How important is it that Yvonne and the rest of that team are aligned with your view of leadership and excellence? So Yvonne was one of our first hires, as you know, when we started walking through what the new management team would look like. And we hired her before we hired many other of the executives. Uh, you know, I believe Yvonne's pe- the, the leader of the HR team. Go ahead. I believe people are the most critical part of any organization and making sure we had the right leadership within HR was an important component. Yvonne sits in every single one of our meetings, from a strategy meeting down to a revenue meeting, down to a branch meeting. When we look at what our branches should look like, Yvonne's involved in those meetings. It changes the role of HR dramatically. Sometimes she has something to say. Sometimes she doesn't have something to say. That said, indirectly, there's a value add by having her there, understanding what direction we are, who we are as an organization, how we as a management team interact. She's without question of critical importance and one of the most important executives we have at Valley. Last question, minute left. Presentation style. I'm a big fan, as you all know, the connection between leadership and the way people present and communicate. How has your presentation style evolved over the last few years? Hopefully it's improved since we've worked together. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's exceptional, but you made it a priority. I think connecting with our employees, connecting with 
customers is really important. And for me to be authentic, I tell stories and I bring in my family. And every single story that I tell, I think it's important for everyone that I connect with to understand who I am, to understand from a morals and values and ethics what I believe in, and to make sure they understand that I'm no different than each of them. I live the same issues that each of them deal with. And that's how I intentionally connect with everyone. Mary, as we wrap up, what biggest takeaways for you with Iris sitting right there? Instead of talking behind his back, say it right there. There were so many, and I only have a few seconds left, but thank you for sharing. For me, it was the visual of having that pie. I've never really thought of it that way and understanding that you can adapt how much time you have for each of those pieces of the pie in your life. So for me, that was very, very useful. So, so you know, we told Ira to come in and it'd be about a five or a 10 minute interview. <laughs> we kept him for over this a half more an than hour. five? <laughs> Ira's got all kinds of things he's got to do over at Valley. I want to thank Ira for not only what he offered on the Lessons in Leadership podcast, but also his friendship and the fact that he allows us to come in and do what we do over at Valley. So thank you for joining thank us. Thank you good for friend. having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. This has been Lessons in Leadership. I'm Steve Adubato. That's Mary Gamba. We'll catch you next time. This is Mary Gamba. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, where we look at the most pressing issues facing the state of New Jersey. This edition of Lessons in Leadership is brought to you by New Jersey Resources and Prager Metis, your world worth more. Hi, I'm Joel Bloom, president of New Jersey Institute of Technology. At NGIT, we believe that not only our students, but all citizens need to be informed about the issues facing higher education. As New Jersey Science and Technology University, NGIT is proud to support the important programming produced by the Caucus Educational Corporation and their partners in public television. Funding for this edition of State of Affairs with Steve Adubato has been provided by the Northward Center, the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, Valley Bank, Holy Name Medical Center, This Place is Different, NJIT, New Jersey Institute of Technology the law firm of Gibbons PC, and by Choose New Jersey. Our mission is attracting companies to the Garden State. Promotional support provided by AM970, The Answer, and by Jaffe Communications, supporting our state's innovators and changemakers with public relations, creative services, and more. Welcome to State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. We're coming to you from the Agnes Varis NJTV studio in Newark. It is our honor to introduce um, Kathy Bennett, who is the president and CEO of the New Jersey Hospital Association, formerly in the state of New Jersey, held a significant role, which was? The commissioner of health. Oh, yeah, that role. Yes. <laughs> How different is this role? This one's pretty different. In the role of commissioner, you worry about regulating hospitals and other licensed health facilities, and you worry about public health. Those are the two really significant roles. And here at NJHA, you know, I'm now looking at not just what are the roles of licensed facilities, because we have hospitals, we have you know, the whole post-acute continuum, we have behavioral health providers. We're also thinking you know, more broadly, what's our role in terms of promoting health overall, improving the health of New Jerseyans? And let's get right into it. If you're listening to on the audio side, Kathleen Bennett is the president and CEO of the New Jersey Hospital Association Vaping. You can't go anywhere without hearing it, seeing it, the media covering. You and I were just talking before we got on the air. First of all, how bad is the problem? Oh, it's pretty significant. I think it's our next, you know, major public health crisis. Because? So if you take a look at vaping, you know, here in the country, we're seeing vaping-related illnesses that are creating serious lung injury. 
you know, um, we're watching the CDC say that they have 40 people that have died from vaping. They're investigating hundreds of cases. Here in New Jersey alone, we have one person that's died, and we have 30-plus cases under investigation. This is a real significant issue. Kathy, how young are kids? Because I just told our daughter is nine, and I can't even comprehend it. And you said? Gosh, you know, we, um, our Center for Health Analytics Research and Transformation just finished doing a study. And we're on track this year to see 16,000 people present in the hospital and have, um, having said that they actually vape as young as 10 years old. 10. 10. How? How are they getting access to it? You know, I, I think that's a really good question because, you know, we have the uh, New Jersey uh, Smoking Act, which says they have to be 21 to buy mm. tobacco products, including vapes and e-cigarettes. So how are, you know, those young as 10 getting their hands on it? It's clearly, you know, coming through, you know, getting somebody else to acquire it. From your perspective, do you believe that, and there are efforts to do this, do you believe vaping should be banned? So, you know, I think it's a little premature to talk about banning vaping. I do believe, though, that you need to be over the age of 21. What we see are these long-term, you know, health impacts, for example, that have been associated with tobacco. But we didn't know it when tobacco first came into, you know, Great, great popularity. If you think back to the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, you know, it wasn't until 1970 that we banned you know, cigarette advertising on television. And now we have this new thing that came about, and just you know, it's relatively mm. recent, and it's another <sighs> nicotine delivery system. One, one more quick follow-up on this. Uh, and, and our um, executive producer, Jackie Heyer, we're just talking about this. We're going to bring in some folks from the vaping industry because mm -hmm. they testified before the current commissioner of health, uh, Judy Purse-Kelly, who held a hearing. And some of those vaping advocates said, you know what? This is, vaping, a safer alternative to smoking. We're going to have those folks here. You know there's, you know that testimony. Yes, I do. You buy it? So, you know, I think that there might be a role. I, I don't really know what it is. But, you know, clearly, a lot of people came out. They testified. They said that it was the thing that got them off of tobacco. And frankly, moving from tobacco to an alternative makes sense. But whether or not vaping becomes, you know, the new addiction, that's another, I think, big issue that bears ex exploration. That's one of the reasons why at NJHA we're looking at this and we've created toolkits and we're pushing them out to our members and other clinicians so that, you know, we start to ask questions mm. and code. What's going on with vaping? How often do you vape? Do you vape with nicotine? Do you vape with THC? We're looking at all those other types of additives because we've got to figure out what's that causal relationship with, you know, different diseases and illnesses. And while you're listening to Kathy right now, check out with our colleagues, check our colleagues at NJTV News have been doing a tremendous job covering the vaping issue every day, new information, switch gears. I want to cover two things. One, there was a mental health conference that you had, um, that the hospital association had. What, was, what were some of the key findings? So the uh, conference, and it was really well attended, was uh, called Suicide and Stigma taking the conversation out of the shadows. And we had every, you know, one from you know, school officials, guidance counselors, to clinicians, to mental health providers, to, to families coming in and wanting to talk about you know, the stigma that attaches to mental health issues, you know, the rise that we're seeing in depression and anxiety, particularly amongst preteen girls, and how that leads to things like suicidal ideation, attempted suicides, and some that actually die by suicide. We get any better in this area in terms of the stigma? In terms of the stigma, I think... More accepting. You know, Sorry for interrupting. Ah, I, th I think in terms of the stigma, we're starting to see some improvement because, take a look, the New Jersey Hospital Association 
hosted a conference that sold out. Groundbreaking. Groundbreaking. People care. People want to know. Those of us who have teenage children, pre-teenage children, you better care. Exactly. It's an epidemic. It is. And what we're hopeful for and one of the toolkits we'd love to see take place is have, you know, your, your child's pediatrician or mm -hmm. their adolescent physician ask questions as part of a, a normal primary care visit. By the way, uh, when next, next time uh, Kathy's up, let's put up the Hospital Association website. I'm sure we've been doing it throughout the program so that people can find out more. The, the other epidemic we've been talking about a lot, the opioid crisis. I know there's an initiative that the Hospital Association is collaborating with. How many other hospitals? So it's the Hospital Association, and we're working with the Department of Health, the Department of Human Services, who gave us grant. Um, we're also working with St. Joe's, which uh, created the ALTO program, and we're sharing opioid reduction options with 11 other hospitals. But let me just also ask, ask you this. Is there a model, because I know our friends over at St. Joseph's Health have talked about this. There's an ALTO, it's an alternative to opioid initiative. Is that the model? So, or there are multiple models. There's a couple of models. Alto is definitely one of you know the leading ones in the country. As a matter of fact, you might recall you were there for it when uh, Senator Booker announced legislation, and it became the first real bipartisan act of this current administration. President Trump signed legislation, Correct. which did what, Kathy? It, it signed Alto into law and said we're going to create funding to move Alto out to hospitals throughout the country. Hospitals. Again, I read, I read a piece that you wrote about this. Hospitals must do a better job being a part of the solution in terms of alternatives to these dangerous opioids. Right. You know, hospitals uh, for years have been dealing with the Joint Commission requirement that says pain, it's the fifth vital sign in, in essence. And so there's a lot of information, you know, around how satisfied are patients with their visit, did they, you know, get what they wanted. And when you're looking at pain and pain management and somebody's coming in and, you know, they're passing a kidney stone, mm. you know, what are you seeing? Well, you know, you might be hooked up to an opioid, you know, IV drip to try and manage those symptoms. And programs like St. Joe's says, you know what, we've got some alternatives. We want to do something besides opioids. And so they take a look at, you know, can we use a nerve block? Can we use nitrous um, oxide? Can we use a combination alternatives. of alternatives to still manage the sure. pain? And, you know, also recognizing sometimes opioids are the right prescription. But not the first resort. Kathy Bennett is the president and CEO of the Hospital Association of New Jersey. 101 years they've been at it. Thank you so much, Kathy. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato, coming to you from NJTV. We'll be right back after this. To watch more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. We are pleased to be joined by John Mooney, executive director and education writer, New Jersey Spotlight. John, tell folks the connection between Spotlight and the larger public television family. Well, thanks, Steve. Um, as you know, Spotlight's been around for about 10 years. We were actually celebrating our 10th birthday uh, pretty soon, but we were acquired by WNET, uh, Channel 13 in New York, to be a partner with NJTV News in New Jersey, to be their digital arm. And we think it's a, a wonderful marriage. Uh, and really, I think the biggest beneficiary is our viewers and readers who will get really more complete coverage of public affairs in New Jersey. And to that end, check out NJTV News every night and see exactly what John's talking about. John, let's get to some of the key issues, education issues. 
Where are we with this thing called the Park Test? As we speak on the 3rd of October, 2019, it's evolving. Yeah, it is definitely evolving, to say the least. I mean, standardized tests. Yeah, standardized tests aren't going anywhere, and it's going to be online. Um, Park is being phased out. It's obviously was controversial. Just its name is controversial at this point. It'll be phased out. They will. It'll ultimately be replaced by a very similar test with a different name. Um, but where we're evolving right now is how much testing we want our kids to do um, and, you know, how often. And, and right now there's a big debate, especially around high school and, and whether uh, we require testing every year in high school or at least 9th, 10th and 11th grade. Uh, the Murphy administration is pushing to scale it back, as he's long promised to do. There are some forces out there that want to maintain it. They think that's really valuable in, in ensuring that students are, there's some accountability for students. And, and the less testing, the less you know uh, about how the kids are doing. Yes, schools do a lot of their own testing, obviously, but um, it, it, there's real questions of whether they're really living up to their promise either. So it's it's a big debate, philosophical one. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also a practical one. Sorry for interrupting, John. There are a lot of questions that people are asking. We've had a lot of educators come on and say, listen, love teaching. Don't love teaching to the test to the degree we do. Fair argument? Yeah, it's sure. I'm sure it's fair. Um, but where's the accountability? I mean, I think... You've got to have it somehow. You've got to have it somewhere. And if it's not that, then what? Yeah, exactly. And so that's a, a big question. And, and it come, what comes into it is graduation requirements and all those kinds of things and whether a test should be required for that. These are debates that I've been covering education for 20 years in New Jersey. They've been going on for 20 years, and they're going to be going on for the next 20. And, and with all good candor, uh, not just my opinion, no one's covered it better than John Mooney. Education. How about this? Um, Commissioner Repolette, Commissioner of Education, was on State of Affairs recently, our, our sister program, and said, you know what? Ed Week, Education Week, just named us the number one state in the nation for education. That's not fake news. No. <laughs> and, and Education Week's a very reputable um, uh, you know, magazine. Is there a but? Weekly. Well, there's a but. It, it's not just, I mean, New Jersey's always been very high up in terms of performance. We're a wealthy state. Uh, typically, performance follows wealth. Um, and so we've done well. Uh, we've also made a big commitment to our urban schools, so they are stronger than most. But a big part of that math, which gets skipped over, is how much we spend on our schools. And New Jersey spends as much or more than any other state on its schools. So it's not just about performance. It's really about investment and, and spending on schools as much as anything. To help people understand, the state constitution of 1947, in fact, when it talked about schools, it said that the state had the responsibility. The state, while there are 600-plus school districts, the state ultimately has responsibility for largely funding the local schools in addition to property taxes, correct? Yeah. Specifically, it says the state has the responsibility to provide a thorough and efficient uh, system of education for Lots of debate as to what that student. means to different people. Yeah, there's been a few court cases around that one. Just a few. Um, Ab Abbott versus Burke yeah, being the big yeah, one. Yeah. yeah. Check out uh, that. How about this? We had the Senate president on recently, uh, Steve Sweeney, who's talked about his initiative called Path to Progress. Not just him, others involved. He's leading the effort. That Path to Progress talks about getting our fiscal house in order. To what degree, in your view, does that impact the spending on education in our state? And the impact on our school? Well, it, it, in several ways. I mean, a, a big piece of Path to Progress, and maybe its most controversial, or at least among its most controversial, is the consolidation of school districts. Um, we have, as you mentioned, we have 600 school districts. There's certain, clearly certain inefficiencies in that. Um, but there's also a huge political 
um, you know, reality of, of home rule and the, and the rest. He wants to at least start that process where we're moving away from small K to six districts, one, one school districts, though there are very few of those left, uh, moving more to a K-12 system, merging high school regionals with, with the districts that feed into them. Um, that is going to be a slow process. And he, mm. I think, wisely is taking it slow. I mean, we haven't even seen a bill on it yet. Um, and and maybe we'll start seeing things pick up, you know, the, in the lame duck. But it's you know the lame fraught duck session of the legislature. Of the legislature after the election. Uh, I mean, it's fraught with with political peril, no doubt about it. Um, and and I think you'll see some movement. He uh, again wisely, I think, has gotten some takers on this um, who we haven't heard yet. But when he puts forward that bill, there'll be a couple takers already out there. Um, and maybe Sussex County has talked a lot about it, Salem County, maybe that could even be a, a county district. So I think he's going to have some ducks in a row, and tough that will be interesting. But it's a tough sell. Try this. Uh, Governor Murphy recently talked about expanding pre-K funding, right? That's not the first time. It's continued to expand. This whole idea of universal pre-K, where are we right now? How close are we to that? And why does it matter? Loaded questions, well, I know. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it, we're, we're a ways, um, you know, quite a ways from universal. But it is expanding. It's obviously in all the Abbott, the neediest districts. Abbott, is it 28 or 31? 31. 31 and, Abbott districts which that are defined largely, by the courts. Yeah, defined by the courts. And they're largely the neediest. But there's lots of poor kids who don't live in those cities. Um, and slowly but surely, they're reaching them. I think, you know, we're roughly probably... Uh, a third of the way there in terms of reaching all those kids in, in those com in those for universal for pre-K. Well, for no, for students who would be eligible as okay. low income. It's not all kids out there um, by any means, and it's huge. I mean, the the benefits of pre-K. Ask anybody who sends their kid to uh, school before kindergarten what the value it is for that kid then going into kindergarten and on to you know, the higher grades. It's, you know, learning those skills early, social, learning early letter skills, early math skills. There's no doubt the benefit. Um, and it's both empirical and, and anecdotal. So, I, you know, it, it is, I would, I would say uh, Governor Murphy's biggest accomplishment so far is getting that going. Um, revived, it, it sort of went dormant. Uh, under uh, Chris Christie for a while. It didn't, didn't shrink, but it didn't grow. Mm. Now it's starting to grow. And by the way, check out pre-pre-K, an initiative we have, we'll put up on the air right now, our website from right from the start, NJ, which focuses on the importance of early child care, uh, zero to three, if you will, birth to three. John, vaping <laughs> and our schools. I mean, there's a large societal question. We'll have the Commissioner of Health talking about it, Judy Persicelli and others. But as an educational school issue, you say? Yeah, I mean, it's ubiquitous. And, and you know, I hear, I, I know a lot of educators, obviously, and talk to them. And, um, you know, starting in fifth grade, maybe even a little younger, but certainly fifth, sixth grade, you know, these kids are bringing them in. And they're sneaking them off in the, into the bathroom. You hear stories in high schools where they're in the back row, you know, leaning on their collar. Um, so it's everywhere, and, and, and educators have talked about it more than most. I mean, you know, it, it really, in the last couple of years, just sort of came out of nowhere uh, as in, in terms of popularity. Now, the dangers, you know, what, how that all shakes out is going to be interesting. But the role of the schools, sorry for interrupting, John, the role of the schools in all this is? Yeah, to, to not allow it, but, but it is. But to police it, do they have the resources yeah. to police it? And, and it can be so concealed. I mean, that's the thing. And, and it can be odorless. And I don't know a whole lot about it, um, you know, certainly having never done it. But it's certainly real. And it affects schools. Before and, I let you out of here, the place for the future of local media, 
you know it well. Yeah, it's a really interesting time. I mean, it really is, to say the least. I mean, I think Spotlight has, has found a really good place for itself and for the state. Um, I think public media in New Jersey is, is strong, but it's evolving. We're, you know, we're weighing how do we transition to a more digital. I mean, we all carry these phones. That's, that's our newspaper now. Um, and, you know, and talking, talking to each other through social. These are all, it's a very different world than when I started as a reporter, you know, back in, I won't even say the year. Uh, uh, many years at the Ledger and, and doing great work. And by the way, we're evolving as well at our not-for-profit production company. John, thank you. Always a pleasure, Steve. We learn a lot every time you're with us. To watch more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. We're pleased to welcome Leslie Anderson, President and CEO of the New Jersey Redevelopment Authority. Good to see you, my friend. Good to see you as well, Steve. Thank you for having me. 20 seconds on the organization. What do you do? Who do you do it for? We serve the underserved in New Jersey. We come in with technical assistance and financing to go in New Jersey's most urbanized communities and redeveloped neighborhoods. We pride ourselves in taking the upfront risk and being there first. Whether it's a mixed use, it's a housing project, a charter school, we are there first to turn that neighborhood around and make it a better place for people to live and to work and improve their quality of life. Leslie, is it grants, loans, what? It's a loan, Steve. Come it's on. It's a loan. And, and you know why we do loans? So that we can turn it over and over and over again. Uh, I don't want to use the teach a person a fish metaphor because I think that's kind of stale. Sure. But that's why we lend it, right? Because what that allows an individual to do is to understand how to put that project together. And the next time they need financing, they can go to the private sector and secure that level of financing because they've done a project, they've paid, they paid us back, they've completed it, and they become very attractive to the private sector and wanting to make an investment. You know, we tape in Newark, as I said, at NJTV News right here in the heart of Newark. There are, there are different tiers of cities, communities. You're focused on, quote, tier two cities? Yes. But, yes. but you're also doing work in Newark. Absolutely. So how does that... Go ahead, explain I that. I love the question. I'm curious about that, me. because I know towns like Bridgeton, mm -hmm. smaller community, right. and others like the smaller communities. Uh, Irvington, uh, Plainfield... East Orange, Orange. Not the biggest. Right. But what are you doing in Newark? So if you, if you break Newark down into bite-sized pieces, there's still challenges in the neighborhoods. That's right. And those challenges in the neighborhood are reflective of Tier 2 cities. So there's still work to be done. Newark is, is enjoying a renaissance. Particularly right here downtown. 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 One of the projects that we did invest in is Rector Street. Uh, 50 West Rector Street, Wasim Barai, Shaquille O'Neal, doing all market the rate. Shaquille the, the O'Neal, just checking. Yes. Who's born and raised in Newark, yes. New Jersey, born at Columbus Hospital Yes. back in the day. Yes. He still cares about the city. Yes, he Go does. Ahead. I'm sorry. So we converted... TMI. <laughs> no, it's fine. He com we converted that site into... It's absolutely beautiful. If we get a film crew out there to see it, this is downtown Newark. High-end, high-quality, market-rate housing. The reason we invested in that is because we want to mix this income that's happening downtown to create some of that disposable income mm. to support small business development. There's always going to be a need for affordable housing, Steve. It doesn't go away. But when you begin to mix incomes and bring people together of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different economic status, you start to create communities that, quite frankly, we all grew up in. Yeah. 
But the other thing is, New Jersey, don't kid yourself, uh, one of the highest housing costs, I mean, the, the oh, most absolutely. expensive housing in the nation. Go back to the Bridgetons. Tell folks what a Bridgeton is. We, we, I remember we interviewed the mayor of Bridgeton a while back. It's a community people don't know, but it is a city in the southern part of the state. Absolutely. Go ahead, describe and it's it. absolutely beautiful. So, what's great about Bridgeton, it embodies why we're the Garden State. There is farming in Bridgeton. Right, so some of what Bridgeton will uh, suffer from, and it's an obstacle, is that three-month farming uh, economy in New Jersey. Or we could extend it out six months, but it's farming. So there's challenges in farming around the country, not just in New Jersey. Mm. But to go to Bridgeton, uh, sprawling space, green, blueberry box. But uh, a city. But it's a city. That's Absolutely. Absolutely, it's a city. In Brick City, it's hard for us to relate to that here in Newark. But yes. you're right, there are other kinds of cities. Absolutely. And, and they and have different needs. Go ahead, I'm sorry. In New Jersey, that's what makes us a microcosm of the United States because, you know, people look at us like, oh, you're, you're Newark. But no, we're not. We're Bridgeton, we're Plainfield, where we have uh, nine historic districts, right? You go into Bridgeton and you do wonder, have I left the state of New Jersey? But some of the urban challenges are still there, so there's still mm. a need for entities like ours to make an investment in those communities. The other thing is there's an initiative. You, last time you were here, we talked about this. The Redevelopment Training Institute is? It is an institute that we created in 2006 to help educate. We started with the community. We started with community because we wanted them to learn about the redevelopment process. Our number one students are attorneys because we give them CEU credits. Right? Continuing education. Exactly. Right? And they need those every two years. But what we sneak in under there, is there a need for them to have a heart? And when they go into these communities, to not be concerned just about the bricks and the mortar, but to be concerned about the people that are going to take mm. advantage of the projects they complete. Uh, ben, a minute left. How tied are you to the Murphy administration? Very. B meaning their agenda, your agenda, in sync? I think... The Murphy agenda is about improving the quality of life for all of New Jersey's residents. And when a governor and a lieutenant governor set the leadership that they're concerned about the least of us, that makes my job that mm. much easier. Their commitment to the Opportunity Zones, their commitment to the new... Opportunity Zones, the federal initiative which the state is involved in. Cory Booker was very involved in that as well. Yes. Real quick, making a big difference, these so-called opportunity zones? The jury is still out. It's a little early, right? Because there was confusion about the regs. Uh, there's a lot of confusion. How dare you imply there's red tape and confusion with government <laughs> bureaucracy? <laughs> uh, but jury's out. Yes. Okay. Give us a little more time. All right. Give us a little more time. How about next time you come back, give you more time? Absolutely. I would love that. Uh, Leslie Anderson is a Penn State um, fan. We were just talking about that. We are. I thought you were wearing, we are. Don't go, I'm not going, I'm a Rutgers guy. I thought you were That's wearing okay. red. That's okay, I'm sorry. You know why I'm wearing red. Why but, am I wearing red? Because today is? I don't know, but I'm wearing red for Delta Sigma Theta sorority. Oh. I always have the <laughs> I red I thought it was on. Giving Tuesday, that's why. I'm sorry, Leslie, we're, we're on a whole other track. But give to Delta Sigma Theta, I'm sorry. I, I got will you, say thank that. you, Leslie. My Thank friend you. Leslie Anderson, President and CEO, New Jersey Redevelopment Authority. And, and she's wearing red. We'll yes. see Jay, and I'm wearing blue. We'll see you next time. White color, though. <laughs> State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by the Northward Center, the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, Valley Bank, Holy Name Medical Center, 
NJIT, the law firm of Gibbons PC, and by Choose New Jersey. Promotional support provided by AM970, The Answer, and by Jaffe Communications. When it comes to you and your family's health care, transparency is key. At Holy Name Medical Center, we believe in creating an environment where patients can be educated and informed so they can get the most out of their health care. As New Jersey's healthcare industry continues to evolve and change, Holy Name remains committed to providing patients with high quality, accessible, and affordable healthcare.